Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 39 of Season 3 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we yippee our way through the 1988 Bruce Willis action flick Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Duncan Shields of Chronologically Speaking. Welcome back to the show, Duncan. Thank you for having me back. I'm, I'm loving these minutes. I'm, I'm glad you are. Just, uh, you know, keep that knapsack uh, tightly tightly uh, closed so that no one can tell what you got in there. Right. <laughs> so minute 39 begins with Theo typing away at the computer and ends with John kicking off Tony's shoes from his from his feet, from his foot. <laughs> so yesterday we ended the, the minute with uh, uh, McLean landing on Tony as they both were tumbling down the stairs and we heard a little bit of a, uh, a gasp or a grunt or some sort of sound from Tony. That was the last we'll hear of Tony in this movie. Yes. Even though he still has some integral, you know, things to do uh, that's going to come up next week. Yeah. That's right. Next yeah. week he's, he's uh, iconicized, but uh, people have to wait until next week to find out what that is. If you don't know yet. And then we actually got a nice break from the scene because this minute begins a completely different scene. So we're, we're back to seeing Theo. Theo is the computer expert that they brought, you know, who uh, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what, what his job really is here because he's just really good at, you know, constantly, you know, clicking the keyboard. That's what he does. <laughs> he's, he's a <laughs> fast typist. He's also to be, you know, he seems to be a bit of a, a sociopathic polymath. Like he, he goes from cracking the lock and hack hacking quote unquote, hacking the lock uh, into uh, legitimately setting up and using uh, an industrial drill. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, this guy's got a bottomless amount of training and interests. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we see we see on the screen, it says, um, you know, there's a picture of an Oriental man. OK, we don't we don't know his name. But we get to see on the screen uh, a little bit of his profile. It says, uh you know, the military uh, record assigned aircraft carrier Akagi, July 1940. Okay, then it says campaigns and battles, Pearl Harbor, Rabul, Darwin, Java, Ceylon. Um, there's, there's, then it says uh, underneath something like military wounded. You know, you can't really see exactly what it says. I like the fact that they have a keyboard that that a few of the letters are lit up on top, you know, very yeah. 80s uh, tech technology that they're using here by showing very this much stuff. So, yeah. You know, very retro for that time. Um, and then it shows on the screen Akagi, and it says English translation Red Castle. Okay, so uh, first of all, I actually looked up: Does Akagi really mean Red Castle? And it turns out that it actually has three different meanings. It's not just Red Castle. Okay. It could mean All Red right. Castle, it could mean Red Tree, or it could mean Red Future. Red Future? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> Red <laughs> Future. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and it's a um, – there There were two Japanese ships named Akagi. There was a gunboat named Akagi in the Sino-Japanese War. And there was the aircraft carrier Akagi, which served during World War II. There is also a mountain 
in the Kanto region of Japan called Mount Akagi. Okay, so I, I don't really know. It's I mean, it's also a typical Japanese surname. I don't know how um, how prevalent it really is, but, you know, it is something that's used uh, often. Where so, did you say it was? Where did you uh, say the mountain was? The mountain is in the Kanto region. K-A-N-T-O. And the O has oh, like okay. a line above it. So maybe I'm mispronouncing it. No, I got it. I got it down as being in the Gunma Prefecture. No, that's Hanshi, the village. On the Hanshu. That's the village. There's a village named uh, Akagi that, that's uh, in the oh, Gunma Prefecture. I see. I see. I got it. I got that. There is also a former town in the Shiman Prefecture that was known as Akagi. I figured I wasn't going to go into everything. You know, <laughs> there's a train service called the Akagi, okay, in Japan. Yeah, there's sure. also the, there's the, also a song mountain, performed yeah. by Max, Maximum the Hormone called Akagi. Don't really know much about it. So it was an aircraft carrier that was part of the 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 attack on Pearl Harbor, and it was actually it was sunk during uh, the Midway campaign uh, right. about a year and a half later. So okay. it looks like the list of battles here. Um, is somewhat accurate then. Yes, mm -hmm. it is. I, I, I actually have uh, some information about where the Akagi served during World War II. So awesome. uh, here, it says uh, Akagi's aircraft served in the Second Sino-Japanese War in the late 30s. Upon the formation of the first air fleet in early 1941, it became the, it, it the flagship and remained so for the duration of her service. With other fleet carriers, she took part in the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 41 and the invasion of Rabul in the Southwest Pacific in January 1942. The following month, her aircraft bombed Darwin, Australia, and assisted in the conquest of the Dutch East Indies. In March and April 1942, Akagi's aircraft helped sink a British heavy cruiser and an Australian destroyer in the Indian Ocean raid. Okay, um, then it mentions that it participated in the Battle of Midway in June 42. And after bombarding American forces on the atoll, Akagi and other carriers were attacked by aircraft from Midway and the carriers Enterprise, Hornet, and Yorktown. Dive bombers from Enterprise severely damaged Akagi. When it became obvious she could not be saved, she was scuttled by Japanese destroyers to prevent her from falling into enemy hands. The loss of Akagi and three other uh, Japanese character carriers at Midway was a crucial strategic defeat for Japan and contributed significantly to the Allies' ultimate victory in the Pacific. Her wreck was located in October 2019 by the research vessel Petrol. So yeah, that's uh, that, that's where he served. <laughs> Whoever this guy, maybe Akagi is is his name. I don't know. I don't know. I think it is. Uh, it might not be. It's like, like you said, it's a common surname. I'm glad to find, I'm glad to hear you say that he is a mystery to you because I thought, okay, I'm getting these, these minutes. I haven't seen Die Hard in a long time. I, I guess he's somebody that was somewhere else in the movie, but I'm glad to hear you say that he's like some guy. Oh, I, th I thought you were going to tell me that you found out who he was. No. Well, my assumption is, is that he's one of the higher, he's even higher up than Takagi. Because Takagi, sure, sure. you know, said, yeah. Takagi said a few weeks ago, you know, my code's not going to help you because there there are seven different codes that you need, and yeah. you know, in in Tokyo they're going to change they change it every day. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty ironic that if they change it every day, you know, uh, Akagi Red Castle is actually one of 
you know, is still one of the, uh, you know, one of the passcodes, but whatever, yeah. that, a minor, uh, you know, uh, minor discrepancy. And then after he puts in, you know, Red Castle, so it says uh, access code uh, accepted, lock number one disabled. Do you wish to proceed? And Theo, as always, you know, is right on the ball and says, you bet your ass I wish to proceed. You know, he, he's talking to nobody, starting a computer. So it, yeah. it says a lot about who, you know, uh, what type of, of uh, computer geek he is. <laughs> I think Theo uh, enjoys his own company. Yes, that's true. That's true. Well, you didn't bring me along for my charming personality, did you? Yeah, he well, did say that. You know, <laughs> yeah, I like Theo a lot because I, I think it's hard to find a better example of somebody who's like, I don't know, gleefully sociopathic. You know, like he's, uh, he's, you know, like it's at a lot of points in these films, like the the sort of cheery sidekick or the 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 computer nerd has a moment of being the weak one. You know, yes. where like the the real strong guys. Uh, kill some people and the computer nerd goes oh geez are we the bad guys here that was kind of harsh or something like something like that where they expose that they're actually gentle creatures they just happen to be really down with binary but you know you, you show them anything resembling a gun and they're like eek you know and uh but this is like one of the only characters that i can remember where he's part of the team and he is you know the hacker or whatever, but he's got uh, glasses, but he's not nerdy. You right. know, he's not like the nerdy nerdster who's also kind of a nerd. You know, he's not like the, uh, you know, like this uh, condescending, uh, you know, brittle, uh, you know, reference laden Hawaiian shirt wearing Cheetos eating nerd character. He's, he's strong. He's ripped. He's really good looking. And he happens to be uh, a, a hacker and he's, happily sociopathic like you know when he sees the the guys get torched and says like hey, the quarterback is toast he's like he's deadpool but he's on like the wrong side he's on the yeah. bad guys team so <laughs> i uh i really like it because you know he's arguably the smartest one on the team besides hans gruber and he's cheerfully unaffected by people dying right in front of them and yeah. even being responsible for their deaths so i just uh and he's always a, using a, sports and always using sports euphemisms. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's got that, uh, you know, and, and, and it's weird to see like, like, I guess an actor of color being in that role, whenever I've seen like the, you know, the, um, the, the, the hacker in a movie, um, it's always usually like a, a skinny white nerd kid, yeah. you know, or, or at least, at least it was in the, in the eighties, in the eighties, right. that was the, you wanted your Anthony Michael Hall stereotype, uh, behind the keyboard, you know, yeah. or your, or your, or your, your Matthew Broderick or, or someone like that, that those were your hackers, but those were the good uh, guys. Then, That's the thing. But those this were the is, good guys. Yeah. This is a bad guy. So there you go. That, I guess that is worthy to know. Yeah. As he's on the, he's on the team of the bad guys. So, right. but he's a, he's a fascinating character to me. And I know yeah, for sure we, we don't get to, t I'm sure you've talked more about him in all the other minutes, but I just wanted to say, I love his, uh, I love his character. Yeah. He's definitely great. And, and then he puts on some goggles and then a machine begins to, to whirl and drill and stuff like that. Now, I'm trying to figure out what is going on here. He has the code. Why does he need to drill? <laughs> well, there's, there's four or five uh, layers, right? So he's gotten no, through seven layer layers. One. There's seven, seven layers. layers. Yeah, there's seven layers. So he's gotten through one layer, and now he's going through to another but layer. But why does so he have to one... drill through them if he has the code? I mean, if you have a code, you, you put in the code, and then it opens it up. 
Well, the code's like for the alarm, but not necessarily for the lock. That's that's what I was. Ah, see, so he's like drilling was, through. He's drilling through the lock. You're saying? Yeah, the lock mechanism okay. of the next right, level. So I figured it was like technolo- It was like a technological level. Uh, you know, like the the stereotypical laser grid, you know, or whatever. But then there's like an actual lock that if you don't know the combination, you can drill out a couple of parts. And then that's just as good. And so I figured that's the next stage that he's on to. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, And then the scene changes and we we get to see uh, McLean opening up a knapsack and starts pulling things out from the knapsack. You know, he pulls out uh, two full full clips of uh, 9mm bullets, which uh, could have been very useful to to Tony beforehand, before he spent all the ones that he had. Okay, uh, he pulls out a uh, walkie-talkie, pulls out a Zippo lighter, that he opens and he 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 flips it on, you know, and you know turns on the Zippo lighter and he like looks around to make sure like nobody's watching him. It's like really funny. There's a few times in the scene where he takes things out of the knapsack and he, he looks around that okay, I don't want to get caught, <laughs> you know, because like he takes the, the the Zippo and puts it in his pocket, you know, that uh, who's who's looking at him this whole thing. So. Well, and it's oddly like, dude, you just murdered a guy. Yeah, you know, and, like, and broke the door. <laughs> and I hope no one sees me steal the Zippo. I'm like, okay, you you really gotta, you're kind of picking and choosing your morality moves here. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. He's a little, you know, he's a little part of that '80s good guy. Like, he can kill the bad guys remorselessly because they're bad guys. And it's yeah. like, well, you're actually a little scary here. You're actually the way you're just sort of gleefully taking out the bad guys is like, well, are you on the side of good? You know, like of course he is because it's an action movie, but Right. The the way That's he true. patted the dead body, the way he pats Tony's dead body like good boy, good boy. That really struck me as a psychotic thing to do. <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, and then right after he finishes with the knapsack, he begins to pat the body again because he's, you know, packing it down. And I never noticed this before, but the first thing that he does is look at the tags on his on on his sweatshirt. Yeah, what the heck? What's that about? <laughs> I'm like, why do you check the clothing label? I know in a lot of movies, sometimes when a spy gets caught, they mention that the spy has ripped the labels out of all of his clothing, rendering it impossible to identify where he bought the clothes. Like, but who I cares? Guess that- so you bought him in Kmart. You bought him in, uh, you know. Yeah, like that's. Is that ever going to be a lead? Like if yeah. it's like a, a bespoke tailor in uh, in Britain, then okay. But like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure why he's looking at the tags and then he pats him down. He's looking for something for anything, okay. Yeah. And then somehow he finds a wallet. Now, Tony is wearing a sweatsuit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You notice this too. Yeah. Yeah. Where is he hiding his wallet? <laughs> He doesn't get it out of a pocket. He reaches into Tony's pants and yes. pulls out a wallet. So it's like yeah. the wallet was just loose in his pants, and uh, they just he, his underwear, quickly... his the elastic on his underwear was keeping <laughs> tuck, tuck, was keeping tuck, that tuck, wallet in yeah. place, <laughs> tucked into his underwear. Snug, now I mean, snug I, I'm not going to go back and look, but I wonder if you can notice, like you know, in previous scenes when he's walking around, if there's like a bulge on the side of his, uh, you know, on on the side of his pants. A rectangular you know, junk bulge of some kind, or just a yeah, a rectangular. That's right. Bulge because like, open. like it's not as if you know, like where where do you keep your wallet? Okay, do in, you keep in your my wallet? back pocket. Okay, so I yeah, keep my wallet in my front pocket. Okay. I know, well, yeah. Well, that's that's advisable. I know when I travel, I keep it in my right. front pocket. I know okay. that um, 
Like in my swimsuit, sometimes they'll have a little pocket on the inside for like keys, I guess, or whatever. And so maybe he's got a little pocket on the inside of his uh, sweatpants, but I've, I've never encountered that in real life. So, but even if he has a little pocket, how is he going to fit his wallet in there? This yeah, is yeah, not yeah. a little pocket, you know. No. So it's a, it's a magic wallet. It's a magic wallet. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I don't get it. Something. Yeah, he does a, a, a great job of keeping his eyes and you know being dead here because Bruce Willis is literally tickling his armpits. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> going through him, and he has to just not move at all. Yeah. And uh, he he does very well. Right. I mean, I quickly just looked through the the, the past few minutes from this week, and there's no point where you can see that he has some sort of bulge right. on the side of his, uh, you know, of where this wallet apparently is hiding. But again, we, we, you know, yesterday we were talking about Harry Potter. So there you go. So he's got, you know, some sort of magic spell that allows yeah. him to, to, you know, to, to place the wallet somewhere in his magic pants. You That's know, right. who knows? Um, and so at this point, uh, McLean takes the wallet and opens it up. And we can see what looks like a driver's license. And it actually, you can, you can actually read what it says. It says Richard G. Aronson, 15306 Riverside Drive, Sherman Oaks, California, 91423. And it expires on the birthday, 1990. But it doesn't show anywhere the birthday. Like, how does, you know, you get pulled over. All right. This is, if this is a real license, right? A driver's license, it's, it's supposed to be a fake license right so but yeah. it's based on something that's real so if you get pulled over how does the cop know you know okay it expires in 1990 right now it is 1990 what day is your birthday has it expired has it not you know it's uh you know i i think this is a detail that they they somehow missed that's what i think what, what do you think about that i think that they had it as a placeholder and that they didn't correct it in time for the film Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I'm and when I did a search for for driver's license from nowadays, you know, it doesn't really. Oh, okay. Here, I I can actually I found one from the 1970s. Uh, it's that's actually funny. It's Alfred Hitchcock's driver's <laughs> license from 1977. Wild. <laughs> and, yeah, Alfred Joseph Hitchcock, Joseph. right? And uh, it has more information on there than they do in this movie, yeah. because it it also has. You know, it's his male, uh, brown hair, brown eyes, uh, height, weight, and then uh, it also has uh, birthday. You know, he was born on uh, August 13th, 1999, uh, 1899, right, not 1999, 1899. So, you know, but on this fake ID, which later on, you know, John is chastised for, for not being able to, to – to notice uh, or for being able to know for being able to claim that he can find a, a he can spot a phony id you know <laughs> apparently this id is missing some very interesting integral uh, stuff. you know aspects yeah. to it yeah and it, it it has like a few little pictures on there also like different types of cars yeah on the the fake Weird. one so the yeah. other thing uh, so yeah the they other, yeah. they didn't get that the one. other thing is and the signature the signature also, it looks to me that the name Aronson is misspelled in the signature. Great yeah. fake ID, Tony. Great fake ID. <laughs> and, but there's also... He could be a f- bartender for all your... nothing in the wallet <laughs> besides the ID. 
which is also kind of strange. Nothing. It's just bereft <laughs> of anything besides that ID. So this whole this whole prop is kind of I don't know. I don't know if it's a bit of a fail or if it's supposed <laughs> to just show that this is how thin the illusion is with this whole crew. Is that uh Yeah. They're they're but again, they're not expecting anyone to pay yeah. attention to these things. Their like disguises, we are. you know, their disguises <laughs> won't stand up to a deep dive, but they're good enough for a for a. Yeah, here's my ID. A flick yeah. in a glance. There you go. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> and then we, the, the 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 shot changes, and we see the bare feet of Tony, and then the the. The, the camera moves to the to the right, and we see the bare feet of McLean, who is unsuccessfully trying to get his foot in this shoe. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and then he makes a classic line. He says, nine million terrorists in the world, and I got to kill one with feet smaller than my yeah. sister. And his sister is never mentioned in any of the other movies. So she's, she's part of the canon that John McLean has a sister somewhere at some point, but uh, not here. Nice. <laughs> I uh, I don't for a second believe that this giant German murder machine has feet smaller than McLean's sister. Not for a second. <laughs> his, and and we see his feet, and then it tracks over to McLean, and they appear to me to be the same size or bigger than McLean's. You know, I mean, yeah. they're right there, and I'm like, uh, okay, this guy's two feet taller than uh, than Bruce Willis, and he's got little tiny feet. I doubt it. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. And it contributes to the plot and it's a good line. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, pointing it out as a flaw. I'm just like, no, no. Yeah. It was like, uh, it, it, it happened in, uh, it was in Tron. Jeff Bridges character was supposed to be like 60. Tron's supposed to be this old hulking gladiator. And then the, the, okay. the computer expert that gets pulled in is supposed to be this little skinny nerd. And so you're supposed to have this giant, old hulking gladiator and a little skinny nerd and they team up inside the, uh, inside the grid. But then they got Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner who are both literally six, two and weigh almost the exact same. And so it's like, uh, from the back, you can't tell these guys apart. So, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of like this with the, with the feet. I'm like, these feet look like they do not look smaller than, uh, than McLean's. Right. Sure. All right, so the the script has a, a few little uh, minor discrepancies once again, but I, I love the description here. It says, for a moment, McLean just looks at the dead man. Then slowly, uh, meth meth methodically, he begins to search him. He turns all of his pockets inside out, looks at his clothing labels, stares long and hard at a California driver's license with Tony's picture on it. He expertly examines the machine gun with it when a hissing sound coming from somewhere attracts his attention. He rises moves cautiously to the source. It's Tony's CB, which has fallen from the dead man's waist during the struggle. McLean stares at it, formulating a plan. Ah, okay. And then it says, uh, we pan from Tony's now shoeless feet to McLean, who sits on the floor next to the body, hurriedly lacing up the dead terrorist boots on his own feet. He ties the last lace and tries to take a couple of steps. He winces in pain, goes off balance. Quickly, he starts taking the boots off. A million terrorists in the world, and I kill the one with feet smaller than my sister. He yanks the, off the boots and tosses them. So, again, there are a few minor things. That I like the fact that he finds the CB and other things in the bag, yeah. as opposed to just having it fall on the floor like it does in Dire yeah, yeah, 2. Yeah. That's where, you know, in that one, that's where he does find the, 
the the CB on the floor sure. like that. But um, and you know the, the the difference between a million and nine million terrorists. You know, I, I wonder if that was just an ad lib on uh, you know Bruce Willis's part at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- yeah, it, it rolls knows? off the tongue a little quicker. It could be that that vocal rhythm thing we were talking about earlier for sure. Yeah, and I like that. Yeah. Well, checking the clothing labels is in the script, so. Yeah. What the heck? But it also says he checks all his pockets, but he doesn't have yeah. any pockets. So I wonder if that was on the day. They're like, uh, oh, my gosh, guys, he has no pockets. Oh, my God. He showed up wearing what sweatpants. Are we <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the audience won't notice. Just put, a, put the put the put the wallet loose inside his pants and uh, no one no one will notice. <laughs> Yes, the magic wallet. Hammer space. It's like the behind the behind the back of the car cartoon characters. You can just pull out a hammer. You can pull out a you know. There you go. So that's what it is. That's right. That works. All right. So every Thursday we have a segment called Off the Beaten Track Holiday Edition, where either myself or my guest will give a little holiday story about something, an adventure, a misadventure, or something that happened to us along the way during the journey of life, but around the holidays. So Duncan, do you have another story? Uh, for sort us? of just. One of the times I always enjoyed the holidays was when my mom's mom was still alive, and she had this giant house in the interior of BC here in Canada called uh, uh, the Okanagan. It was like um, it's like Kelowna. It's a, a lot of orchards, a lot of wine, a lot of vineyards. Uh, it's a, it's a and, and quasi desert in the summer in parts. It's a it's a very hot hot summer there, and it's a beautiful beautiful region. And my grandma had this huge dining room table and a good number of bedrooms in her house. So a bunch of the family lived close. But a few of us had to drive a good ways to show up. And every Easter, we did that every Christmas, usually sometime in the summer, as uh, having this big old family get together on a sizable plot of land with all the cousin and uncles and grandparents and all that on my mom's side playing hide and seek. And and uh, it's it, the really special memories of this big, long table with everybody eating together. And after she passed, the house was sold. And nobody really has the space or inclination to host the whole family like that on a regular basis again. So it kind of uh, it, it died with her. And it was an old school family gathering. And that doesn't really happen much anymore. But those are really, really uh, special memories to me. Oh, wow. OK, great. Thank you very much for that story. Why don't you once again tell people uh, where they can find you? Uh, TorontoLogicallySpeaking.com. Um the Time Bandits, I think it's the Time Bandits. I'm, I'm scared that I've been telling everybody the wrong place to go. You can go to the Time Bandits Minute on Twitter. Uh, that's, a, that's a good place to to go for it as well. All right. Great. All right. When while you're doing that, you can go re- review and subscribe on any podcast you might be listening to this show on. And finding me is quite simple. Just do a quick search for Move Your Own Minute. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Or you can go to my website, moveyourownminute.com. So, Duncan, you feel like come back again tomorrow to finish off this week? Heck yes. All right. Excellent. So we will see you tomorrow, and we hope everyone comes back. But until then, yippee-ki-yay. Yippee-ki-yay.